You are listening to the Ibn Abi Umar podcast. This is your host, Umar Osman. Assalamualaikum, everyone. We're joined today by my good friend, Salman Nasser. And I say good friend, we actually grew up together. We're childhood friends uh, since birth, actually. Our parents were family friends. Uh, Salman is now in Mecca, where you've, you've been there for about 15 years now, right? 10 years? Uh, 10 years? 12 years, 12 years. 12 years, okay. Because I know it was, yeah, I remember about that time. But Salman is a master's student in Us- Fiqh, Usulul Fiqh at Umul Qura? Fiqh. In Fiqh, okay. So he's been there a while, he's been studying Fiqh. Um, and we were talking essentially about a lot of the coronavirus stuff, and particularly this thing about a lot of Muslims saying there's no such thing as contagious diseases. But before before we jump into that, uh, Salman, anything else you want to tell us about your background? One thing, one thing I'll mention is that when I went on Hajj, uh, I didn't realize that you were actually the the fic reference point for a lot of the the Hajj groups that go from the U.S. here to get their humbly fic opinions on the fic of Hajj. You're you're the consult and go to guy. Uh, so I mentioned that tidbit. But anything else you want to mention here before we get started? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say a lot of groups, but I mean, obviously people who know me, they, they send me their questions, particularly because um, one thing about Hajj um, is that obviously Hajj is something you can read about it, but you really sort of have to experience it. When you live in Makkah, Alhamdulillah, you get to make Hajj a good number of times. So you're, you're much more familiar with the issues than, you know, even somebody who might be a big scholar, but he's living outside and maybe, you know, he's made Hajj once in his life. Uh, obviously, I mean, if he's a big scholar, he would know he would know the issues. But still, um, you, you you still have a better idea of just you know the the nitty gritty of uh, a lot of the details. So yeah, uh, people who are in a situation like mine, we tend to get a lot of questions referred to us, uh, in part because if we don't know the answer ourselves, we we know what a lot of the, the ulama have. Um, have said about different things, oftentimes we're able to consult them. So, you know, that puts us in a good position to, uh, those of us who are studying here, whether at Ummul uh, Qura University in Mecca or Medina University, it uh, puts us in a good position that we're able to help a lot of groups with, um, with uh, you know, getting the answers to some of their sticky questions. Alhamdulillah. So, you know, so we've, we've been chatting a lot lately and, you know, the, I mean, the thing with this coronavirus situation is all kinds of things keep popping up. Uh, you know, the memes now are about the, the anti-WhatsApp groups and everyone having a cure for it with Vicks and bananas and, you know, all kinds of home remedies to save yourself and all of that. But one, you know, one thing that's interesting that, that's popped up, and for me it was of particular interest because uh, one of the things that I've focused on with some of, you know, my writing or podcast or whatever is the idea of, I had this podcast episode, the involuntary manslaughter of Islamic knowledge or of Islamic scholarship, yes. where people are feigning expertise or they're taking a little bit of what they know and and pumping it out to be a lot. And I and I think one thing that fell into this category is this assertion or maybe this theory or hypothesis or statement, however you want to label it, that Islam does not believe in contagion. And so therefore to take steps like closing the masjid or telling people to stay at home is somehow violating the mandate of the wakul and 
you know, this is misleading the ummah and so on. And I wanted to talk about this with you because this is a source of confusion, especially when people are actually quoting authentic ahadith to back this up. So I thought maybe we start with, can you let us know, you know, what, what these hadiths say, where this is, and, and where this is coming from? Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulullah wa ba'ad. You know, to begin with, um, it's interesting you mentioned that, you know, people are, uh, you know, sharing memes and things like that about an auntie WhatsApp groups uh, suggesting uh, cures for, um, for coronavirus. Uh, but you know, as as silly as that sounds, um, you know, just yesterday I actually saw a video of a prominent scholar from Pakistan um, who was basically saying that uh, coronavirus is caused by too much coldness in the body. And that, you know, that basically the cure to this is to eat dates and figs. I'm trying to remember the things that he mentioned. Dates, figs, black seed. And I think he, like he mentioned one or two other things that are all supposed to, that are all considered. Is, it, is, this, is it to eat all the things that our moms would tell us not to eat, like garam cheese and ekhani Chinese? <laughs> yeah, exactly, 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 exactly. That's actually what he's saying. He's saying that, I, that you know, I promise you that, you know, this, if you eat these things and you make dua that inshallah you won't get ill or that, you know, that if you are ill that um, it, will, it will sort of temper the effects of the illness. And, you know, the thing is, it's, this actually, it's, it's an interesting point to start off with because what he is saying is actually based on, I mean, for, for myself and you, obviously both of us were from Pakistani background, is anybody who's from the Indian subcontinent will probably be familiar with this whole thing of you know you have things that are hot and cold, and uh, and and certain foods are identified as hot and certain are identified as cold, and that uh, you, you know you should avoid these things because they cause this and this causes this. Uh, all of this actually comes back to um, Greek medicine, classical Greek medicine, uh, and. The Greek medicine is actually something that um, it still exists in Pakistan. It's typically known as hikmat, uh, and practitioners are called hakims. I'm not sure the exact reason why they're called that, but um, I think it comes back to the fact that you know, medicine, along with all other sort of what we would consider today to be natural sciences, originally were sort of a branch of of philosophy, and philosophy is the pursuit of wisdom, and so sometimes it is referred to in Arabic as Elmul Hikmah. So I I suspect that that might be where the name comes from, but it's also known in the Indian subcontinent as Tibunani, literally Greek medicine, and the reason is because this this um, sort of medical paradigm, um, this was starting with the ancient Greeks spread through much of the world and certainly um, you know um, after uh, you know the Muslim Ummah became an empire and started engaging with other civilizations Muslims took this on as well and so we made it basically our own and so for example you know the famous uh, Muslim medical experts like uh, Ibn Sina and, and the rest 
uh, known in the West as Avicenna. We're actually working from this, this paradigm. Um, in Pakistan in particular, or in the Indian subcontinent in particular, this paradigm is very much, you know, this medicine is very much still practiced. So you still have people who are practitioners of this. And one thing that you will find is that um, in, in Pakistan, it's not uncommon for people who are scholars of, uh, of the religion to also be practitioners of, of this pigment. And so, so basically, so, so for clarification, the, this type of medicine that's being learned now, uh, how, how consistent is it with modern scientific medicine? Okay, I'm going to try and keep, I'm, uh, number one, I'm not an expert on medicine. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and basically explain uh, in very simple terms. Uh, I just have to make that disclaimer. I'm not an expert on medicine. I'm not an expert on the history of yeah, Greek medicine you, and how it evolved. You, you almost, have, you almost have went to medical school, though. So that counts for something. Well, well <laughs> basically, basically, what you, do, you basically said, you're, I'm Pakistani, so that's not that doesn't mean anything. Because um, every Pakistani at some point or another is obviously a pre-med student. That's not, but but yeah. So this um, the the Greek model of medicine is known as, uh, sometimes as, uh, it revolves around a theory known as humoralism. The idea that there are these four humors or certain types of fluids in the, in the, in the body that have to be in balance for the body to be, um, to be healthy. And when these come out of balance, then the body becomes unhealthy. And so, the entirety of um, of classical Greek medicine revolves around trying to maintain this balance between these the, these these different uh, humors, as they call them. And most most Greek most ancient medical systems, whether it's the Chinese or the Indian or what have you, revolved around some similar concepts. Not exactly the same, but similar. So basically, this idea of the four humors that they have, and they are blood, uh, phlegm black bile and yellow bile. Um, the, so the, the, the idea is that these have certain qualities, hot and cold, wet and dry. And, and so, and these, these things are influenced by food and they're influenced also by some other things. And so you want to try and keep them in balance. This was, a, this uh, sort of paradigm for medicine was prevalent throughout the world including in the West, until it was completely considered to be, have been completely debunked, discredited in the mid-19th century. So as of, we're speaking about 150, 170 years ago, something like that, this is considered to be complete, uh, completely false, completely disproven. Uh, and also... A major part of uh, the the classical Greek model, and this this will find it comes it plays a big role in the way that a lot of scholars were interpreting these hadiths uh, that are relevant to this topic of contagious disease. Um, the uh, it was considered that one of the major causes, if not the major cause of of um, of the plague in particular and other diseases, was uh, basically pollution, sort of corrupt air, that the air would be of bad quality 
and that there would be certain sorts of poisonous vapors in the air that would then create this sort of imbalance in the body that would result in um, uh, in certain types of illness. Amongst them, you know, the plague, known as the bubonic plague or Black Death, also also is part of uh, of that. So, and now obviously this is something that we know now is largely false. This this understanding of the way the body works is basically disproven. So, when scholars in the past were engaging with um, discussions of medical issues and balancing between what do the Sharia texts say and what does medicine say and what are established medical facts and what are just sort of medical theories that are perhaps open to dispute, they were working from this paradigm. So, so is it fair to say, for example, if we, if we rewind back um, a couple of hundred years and we maybe find a classical Islamic scholar giving a certain fatwa based, you know, that, that's dealing with a medical issue that they essentially at, at their time were exercising their knowledge of fiqh and modern medicine, which at that time happened to be this Greek influenced version of medicine. But that was the, the most modern form of it at their time. Basically, basically, basically I mean, a, lot of, a number of these things that I mentioned now that probably sound alien to people, uh, to a lot of people who are listening, these were con- some, some of them were considered to be fundamental medical fact, which, I mean, now we know obviously that they're, that they're simply not. I mean, in so kind of like the, the kind of like the earth being flat at some point. <laughs> yeah. The earth being flat being at a, some point, geocentrism at some point, any, any number of things at some point that were simply taken uh, as being straightforward fact. Uh, or and perhaps even being you know fairly obvious, so even people who were challenging aspects of of uh, of uh, of the I guess you could say the the uh, the medical status quo were still working from this framework. An interesting example we see of this is um, uh, Imam Ibn Al Qayyim is very famous for his uh, Atib al Nabawi. Prophetic medicine, and this has been translated in English. It's oftentimes published as a as an individual book. It's actually a section of his famous work on Sirah called Zad al Maad. So in Zad al Maad, he dedicated a section to prophetic medicine. And the funny thing about it is that you know what he's done is actually in in some ways it's it's somewhat analogous to what we see with the uh, with the. Uh, the sort of the scientific miracle phenomenon that sort of developed in the modern era, where you had people taking things and trying to link them with modern science and say that this is, these are miracles in the Sharia. Um, and I'm not saying that to put, put down what he did. I actually think that you know, it's actually admirable what he did. What he was attempting to do was to take the hadiths that we have from the Prophet about medical issues and reconcile them with medical knowledge and sort of create a paradigm of, uh, of, um, of how you know, medicine works, I guess, or a medical theory that is a mix of what we know from the Prophet with science. 
obviously the problem with it is that he was still working in this scientific paradigm with with the the, the, the theory of the four humors. So he's very much uh, tied to that. And so a lot of things that he says in, in his book on prophetic medicine, uh, or even the way that he's interpreting a lot of things that the Prophet ﷺ is, is saying, he is interpreting them from that light. And this is actually, you know, it's, it's somewhat problematic that we have um, people still, you know, they quote At-Tabba um, nabawi by Ibn al-Qayyim as if all of this is from the Prophet Wasallam. Uh, and just yes, yeah, so I, I was about to ask you: Is it is it correct then to label a lot of these these things as prophetic medicines? Because the way that a lot of these books and things are published now, it's you know, hey, here's these methods of treatment. They might not make sense scientifically, but they're sunnah. So don't so as if this is from revelation, akin to the hadith about honey or black seed or something like that. Well, okay, you know, here's the here's here's the thing. Um, Number one, if we look at what Ibn al-Qayyim did, Ibn al-Qayyim said that, these, the, that the prophetic medicine is entirely reconcilable with modern medical science. Modern medical science meaning medical science in his time. Um, and so he attempted to do that. In, in our time, uh, we have a lot of people who have approached these things in a similar fashion trying to say, let's look at, you know, is there in fact, can we prove that there are medical benefits to certain things that are present in the sunnah? Um, and there might very well be things that we can prove that there's medical benefit in them uh, and others that we cannot. The question is, well, are these things revelation? Something that's interesting, a lot of people don't know this, is that um, classical scholars actually differed on this as well. You know, to what extent is the sort of the medical prescriptions of the Prophet ﷺ, if you like, to what extent are they uh, basically considered uh, part of the Sharia, as something that is based on way? And so scholars actually differ. Um, Ibn Khaldun, for example, was of the opinion that uh, by default, most of what is um, uh, what is reported from the Prophet ﷺ is basically just him making suggestions on the basis of uh, traditional Arab folk medicine. Because obviously, this entire, this entire model that we spoke about, this medical model that we spoke about, the Greek model, did not exist in the time of the Prophet ﷺ in Arabia. This was something that the Arabs took later on from other civilizations. So this wasn't there in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. So Ibn Khaldun is actually of this opinion. Other scholars go the other way and say that, no, these things by default to revelation. I'm not really um, committing to a position here. I think it's very possible that these things could all be revelation um, and that there could, in fact, all be things that are medically beneficial. And some of them very well might be things that were not known to people at the time of the Prophet ﷺ and they were revealed to the Prophet ﷺ, so he knew them by revelation. Um, unless the text is explicit, in indicating that it is from the revelation, um, it's difficult to say with certainty that it is from revelation. I mean, that would really require rigorous medical studies to try and understand what are the medical benefits of um, of uh, of these things that the Prophet ﷺ has prescribed. But 
you know, at the end of the day, it's it's actually an issue that ulama have differed over. So, so taking that that paradigm, that understanding and context, uh, can you bring us to what exactly are the hadith about contagious disease, and then how that's being now understood or misunderstood? Okay, what what I'll do is I'll try and I'll try and sort of cover some of the most important points because it's a really it's a big discussion and scholars went back and forth on this at great length. Um, basically, um, one of the one of the most well known hadiths, um, which is reported in Sahih al Bukhari and elsewhere, the Prophet says. Um, لا عدوى ولا طيرة ولا هامة ولا صفر. لا عدوى ولا طيرة ولا هامة ولا صفر. وفر من المجدوم فرارك من الأسد. وفر من المجدوم فرارك من الأسد. So the Prophet ﷺ he says there is no عدوى. I'm not going to translate that because the dispute into exactly what this means is uh, very much going to you know, determine sort of how you would translate that. I'll come back to that in a moment. There is no adwa, there is no tiara, tiara being basically bad omens, particularly omens that are tied to certain types, tied to, tied to the behavior of birds, uh, which is something that the Arabs in Jahiliya used to very much take as omens. Uh, as bad omen. Wala hama. Hama is all of these things that are mentioned in this hadith. Actually, the classical scholars uh, from the earliest generations, you'll find that the difference of opinion amongst them as to what exactly it means. Hama means that there is no, uh, that is basically it's negating uh, a belief that the, uh, the Arabs of Jahiliya had that um, when uh, a person is killed wrongly, that his 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 uh, corpse turns into an owl, and it cries out for vengeance. It cries out for blood, so that it can be venged. So its death, so its wrongful death, can be venged uh, until somebody takes vengeance for it. This is one interpretation of what is meant by Hama. That this is this belief about becoming an owl. Others have said that what it means is. That um, that the Arabs of Jahiliya they used to consider that if an owl came and sat, you know, on your roof um, or on your on your terrace, that this was an omen that death is about to come to you. So it's it's negating either this superstition or another superstition. La suffer. Suffer is there is three interpretations. One is that they considered the month of suffer to be bad luck. Another is that this was a, this was sort of like a, I guess you could say like a um, like a, they considered this to be a type of worm in your stomach that would uh, sort of bite you when it's hungry. Sorry, when you get hungry, it bites you, and that it might even kill you. So again, it's some sort of fantastical superstition of jahiliya. This is another interpretation. The third interpretation that is it actually refers to the uh, the Jahili practice of uh, changing the months of the year. 
So oftentimes, because the month of Muharram is a sacred month and fighting is not allowed in Muharram, they would change Muharram and Safar around to be able to fight. And so this is the third interpretation, La Safar. So basically he's saying he's negating, in each of these things, he's negating some Jahili practice, some Jahili superstition, or some Jahili belief. And then the last one is, um, yeah, that's, that, uh, I guess that's the last one. That's the last one. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he says, And run away from the person who is afflicted with leprosy, majdum, the leper, the way that you would flee from a lion. Okay, with that said, let me now come back to Adwa. Okay, we've, we've already seen how um, the Prophet ﷺ in this hadith is negating um, a number of things that are tied to Jahiliya. In other versions of this hadith that are reported by, by other narrators, um, meaning other narrators from the Sahaba, some of them mention other things. Like, for example, some of them mention Wala ghul. Ghul is um, basically a type of, of shaitan, like a demon, that they thought would come and, and appear in different shapes to people while they're traveling and lead them astray. And scholars have actually differed as to what exactly is meant by that. Or is the hadith saying that there is no such thing as the ghul? Because we know that there are jinn and jinn can take different forms and, and what have you. So what many of them said is that it's not actually saying that the ghul cannot that the ghul does not exist, but that the ghul cannot harm you except by the permission of Allah. And remember, you know, the um, obviously the Arabs in Jahiliya were mushriks. And we know from the Quran that, you know, uh, of the things that they used to worship were jinn. So it's not, um, you know, far-fetched to say that what is meant here is to tell them that these jinn that you are considering to be some sort of demigods um, that, that, you know, are sort of uh, uh, sort of demons, demigods that are that are basically demons that that cause people harm. That they cannot harm you except by the will of Allah. And another thing that is mentioned in some of the narrations, this narration is in Sahih Muslim, but it's not actually as authentic. Mentions wala no, no is has to do with the um, the stations of the moon. They believe that when the moon entered a new station, that this would bring rain. And, uh, you know, many of you might be familiar with the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. In another hadith, he talks about the same concept that um, he says, uh, in a, basically in hadith Qudsi, he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, basically he was out in an expedition, it rained that night, and then in the morning he says that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, asbaha bi wa kafir. That, you know, today in the morning, some are... There's some who have, are believers in me and some who have become disbelievers in me. As for the believers in me, they are the ones who say, Mutirna bifadlillah wa rahmatihi. That we received rain by the blessing of Allah and His mercy. And there are those who say, Mutirna, uh, and as for the one who has disbelieved in me, they are the ones who say, we were given rain account on, on account of this station of the moon. So the station of the moon or station of the stars? Uh, in any case, um, regardless, they're, they're, they're tying it to this, you know, this sort of celestial body or the celestial phenomenon that they think that this is actually has some uh, control of affairs. 
And again, it's very important that um, to understand that what is being talked about here is a belief that is shirk. Because uh, as Imam uh, Shafi, for example, and most of the fuqaha when they discuss this hadith, as they've explained that basically this statement that we have received rain on account of such and such star or, or account of the moon being in such and such um, uh, station, that this would be kufr if the person believes that this, is a, that this thing is able to bring about this effect independent of the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if he believes that this is just a sabab, he might be wrong, but that wouldn't be kufr. So otherwise, you know, basically, the, you know, anytime a scientist gets something wrong, he would be committing kufr. Because he's attributing, his, you know, for example, you know, somebody is testing, they think maybe that uh, Tylenol could be a cure for cancer. I mean, that might be wrong, it might be silly, but it's not kufr. It would be covered if they believe that you know that this is able to actually bring about this effect independently. So, um, independent of the will of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. With that said, uh, the correct interpretation of la adwa here, and this wording la adwa is what is is really the most important element of the argument that there is no contagious disease. There's no such thing as contagious disease in Islam. La adwa is understood by some ulama to mean that there is no such thing as contagious disease. That disease does not, meaning disease does not pass from an ill person to another person. So this is the way that some of them understood it. But a group of ulama, amongst them um, uh, Imam al-Bayhaqi, Ibn al-Salah, uh, al-Nawawi, when they commented on this hadith, they said that the, the view that they took, also a Tibi in his Shahat, Mishkat al many scholars, when they interpreted this hadith, they said that what this is talking about is it, this is some sort of jahili belief that the pagan Arabs had in Jahiliya that these things, that these diseases, there's something intrinsic about them that they pass from one person to another. Independent of any, uh, independent of, of the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So again, it's bring, it's, and this is consistent with what we see or all of the other things that are mentioned in the hadith. That all of these things the hadith is mentioning, or it's negating things that are in fact tied to the superstitions of jahiliyyah, tied to the shirk, shirki beliefs of jahiliyyah, um, tied to the, you know, the sort of the fantastical beliefs of jahiliyyah, because not all of them are shirki. Either between being either um, actual shirk, or um, at, or or simply simply you know um, uh, absurd superstitions, and so I believe that you know when the Prophet ﷺ, when he oh, said this hadith, so so can I, so yeah. can I pause you so to, to make sure that I'm understanding this right? Yeah, yeah. So there there take so if we take this concept, this statement that a disease is contagious. And it can be passed. So if I cough on someone, I pass them the disease. They're saying that given the context of the hadith, for me to make that statement that a disease in and of itself can be passed from one person to another is analogous to other jahili superstitious beliefs or could even be kufr in a sense because I'm 
the because the correct understanding of iman would be that a disease will only spread if Allah wills. There is no actual scientific contagion. Yeah, basically, basically there's there's two things here. One is you know, leave aside the the kufr aspect for a moment. Um, one is they said that there is no such thing. There is no such thing as scientific contagion. This cannot be proven. And one thing that we will find is that, you know, um, or one thing that is uh, clear from looking at the discussions that happen between scholars, Ibn Hajar, for example, is one of those scholars who takes the view that there is no such thing as contagion. One of the arguments that he makes, and this is an important point, when he was making his arguments, he is not actually denying that there are natural causes of disease. Because even he accepts much of the, the conventional medical wisdom of his time that has nothing to do with the nasus of the sharia. Like, for example, when a person is um, afflicted with, uh, with plague, that, uh, that his blood is poisoned, and so therefore you should use bloodletting to release that poisoned blood. So he accepts that, you know, that there are these natural causes that are involved in, uh, in, uh, in, in disease. Um, in disease or whether in cure or what have you. But from a, a uh, looking at the text, he said, this text, the apparent meaning of this text is that there is no such thing as contagion. The Prophet ﷺ is negating it. La adwa. There is no such thing as contagion. Uh, and there are some other texts that are used as well to support this. Um, uh, to, to support this interpretation. But basically, he says that even if we look at the empirical evidence, and this is actually a very important point, because if we look at the empirical evidence, the empirical evidence is not very consistent. Meaning, according to uh, the doctors, they're saying that plague is caused by um, uh, the corruption of the air. But we find places where there's where the air is better quality than other places will get the plague in the place with the worst quality air does not get the plague. Um, and there's no there, and and there's no medical explanation for according to their paradigm there's no there's no explanation for this empirical evidence. So basically, he was looking at the the. Uh, uh, sort of the medical explanations that existed at his time and poking holes in them, saying that, the, that this theory, its explanatory power for the um, empirical evidence that we have, it falls short, which is not actually untrue because it did. So if, if we were to summarize this, as, as essentially what's happening is he's interpreting the hadith in light of the best available scientific evidence and basically his reading of the the, of the available scientific evidence gotcha. it's not just that he's looking he, he was looking he was looking at what do the texts themselves seem to indicate and then what is the actual ev empirical evidence and medical concepts that we have and how can we possibly reconcile these things and so he's looking at the relative strength of the texts that he's dealing with and the relative strength of the, the empirical evidence that we're, he's dealing with and also the 
relative strength of the medical theory that he's dealing with. So, by the way, something interesting. He actually, um, uh, his explanation that he came up with, this is going to sound really weird, but, you know, just sort of hear me out. He says that, okay, basically, it seems that Ta'un, Ta'un being the plague, is a unique disease. Um, and one of the signs that this is a unique disease is that we have these hadiths that indicate that, you know, the person who dies in Ta'un is a shaheed. And when we look at the fact that, you know, we have no cure for it, doctors are unable to come up with any cure for it. And there seems to be no external explanation for it. Because the external explanations that doctors are coming up with, as I said, he says that they don't really seem to stand up. So what he says is that there must be something unseen that is causing it. So um, he said that the plague is actually caused by people being pricked internally by a jinn. Because there's no external cause for it. Now I know I know, I know that so so basically be, because he because he can't find a natural observable scientific cause, he's then resorting to a supernatural explanation. Well, okay, yeah, you could say that if you want, if you if you can say that jinn are supernatural, but I mean, I think he would just say jinn are or, something that are part of, they're part of the world, they're part right. of our natural world. They're just something that is unseen. Now, what's interesting is that. Now, you know, what we know, like, for example, the, the, the bubonic plague in particular, uh, Black Death, is known to be caused by bacteria. It's caused by a particular type of bacteria, and it can be transferred through the air from person to person, so it's airborne, and it can also be transferred by um, uh, being bitten by a flea or a rat that is infected with it. So... But it's it's the bacteria. It's the bacteria. In a, in a funny way, bacteria actually is something that is unseen. It actually is something that is unseen. But bacteria is nowhere on anybody's radar in the medical community for another, you know, I think from his time, I think we're talking about at least another four centuries. So he was basically just, you know, uh, I, I think he got it wrong. I think he got it very wrong. But um, it wasn't for a lack. It was. It wasn't simply. Um, he wasn't simply coming from a place of. Here, the text. The texts take um, uh, precedence, and we're going to ignore science. No, he was actually looking at everything and trying to reconcile it. For his time, I think the, reason, the conclusion that he reached, I don't think it's necessarily even the best conclusion, of, because obviously we have people who came to, to better conclusions than he did uh, in the tradition. Uh, scholars who explicitly uh, affirm um, uh, contagious disease. But it's not an unreasonable conclusion, given the time that he lived in and the information that he had in front of him. Did other scholars have uh, defend the opposite position that we might say is the more common one today, which is obviously that there is contagion? 
or did that yes. not come okay, till so later I, with without with the scientific developments yes uh, so uh, as, as i mentioned um we have one of them is actually uh, ibn hajar's own teacher ibn al-mulaqqin ibn al-mulaqqin who also wrote a massive sharh of sahih al-bukhari called the tawdih he of he says that uh, that uh, contagion is real and la adwa means what I said, basically the interpretation that I mentioned, that this is negating the jahili conception and that um, disease is, contagious disease is in fact real. So he said this, Imam al-Nawawi in his Sharh of Sahih Muslim says this, uh, Al-Tibi in his Sharh of Al-Mishkat says this, a host of scholars have actually taken this interpretation. Um, a group of scholars in, actually took the interpretation, which is in, not at all unreasonable, that uh, that this is actually talking about that la adwa here is actually negating certain diseases that the jahili people can that the people of jahiliya consider to be contagious that they are not in fact contagious whereas other diseases such as uh, leprosy are contagious so you have diseases that are contagious and diseases that are not contagious so uh, so how do these also actually without getting into the details of what they said, because in the details they were looking at what is mentioned in the text, but that's actually true. There are diseases that are contagious and others that are not contagious. So the people that defended this position of uh, diseases not being contagious, how did they then understand and explain the hadith that says that if you find out a land has a plague, do not enter it. And if you're in a land with a plague, then don't exit from there. Basically, for those who deny that there is uh, contagion, this hadith uh, that you mentioned, and Ibn Hajar incidentally has an entire book about the plague. Uh, this hadith, the way that they look at it, they have different things that they're taking into account when they look at it, and they come up with different sorts of explanations. Um, so one of the things that they say is that, okay, basically, the purpose of these sorts of commands or prohibitions, like uh, running away from the leper. Because obviously, if the leper is not, if his leprosy is not contagious, why would you run away from him? If plague is not contagious, what's the problem with entering a land in which there's plague? So they said, okay, the reason for these sorts of things are um, to protect the iman of the person who is weak in iman, and if he was, for example, if he came into contact with a leper and then Allah decreed for him to develop leprosy, he might think that it was that person's fault. And because people have a tendency to associate things with, with material causes, even if they're not the real cause, that to guard this person's faith from falling into this uh, and to, to basically falling into holding on to asbab, and then this, in this case, a suburb that is not even a real suburb, and uh, and weakening their attachment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect their iman, they should be protected from that. So stay away from the leper, uh, don't go into the land that has plague. As for the person who is in a land where there is plague, then this is a test for him from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that um, he has chosen to try the people of this land with the plague. Uh, 
and so um, you know that uh, uh, he should simply be patient. If Allah decrees for him to get the plague, he will um, be a martyr. And if not, if he is deals bears patiently with this difficult situation, um, if he deals patiently with this difficult situation. while trusting in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then he will be rewarded for that. Because he knows that even if this seems to be, um, being in this place seems to be something that you would want to run away from, it's not. Uh, there are other things that these scholars took into consideration when discussing this. Like, for example, some of them said that, you know, this basically, um, if people were to run away from... Uh, from a from a community or from a society where people are becoming ill, then this would lead to abandoning the weak and the elderly and those who are unable to leave. And who is going to look after them? So they're looking at it from a sort of a uh, not sort of a theological, not as much of a theological concern as a sort of a very sort of humanitarian concern. So all of them, they came, they, they, they sort of took all of these different things into consideration. There are other things that they brought in, into play. Like, for example, with the issue of leprosy, some of them said that the issue with leprosy is that, um, is that uh, the smell, the odor of the leper is extremely offensive, um, that it is... It can be harmful. It can be, um, and so you know, for that reason, the leper should be kept separate. Now I know that some of these things are contradicting, but that's because not everyone is actually offering each of these individual explanations from the camp that denies contagion. But basically, you have a host of sort of explanations that are sort of thrown out there, and you can clearly see that they're sort of looking at all these different texts and sort of speculating about how to bring them all together. By the way, one thing that is very important, and I have to, I have to mention this because this is one of the important texts that, uh, that, is, uh, that is used for the position of those who said that there is no contagion. So if I don't address it, you know, the discussion will be incomplete. Basically, um, in, in one of the narrations, when the Prophet says that there is no adwa, uh, a Bedouin says to him, or a person says to him that, well, you know, we'll have uh, a group of 100 camels and there will be one camel that has jarab. Jarab is mange. That, uh, uh, and it will mix with them and then the rest of them will get it. So the Prophet said to him, فَمَنْ Who is the one that transferred the disease to the first one? Because the word adwa literally means sort of to transfer. The root meaning is to transfer from one to another. So he said, فَمَنْ أَعْدَ الْأَوَّلِ Who is the one who passed it on to the first one? In other words, to say that... that um, so they say, they say that this what this hadith means is that the Prophet ﷺ is saying that um, this, the fact that there has to be a first one that, that got it without there having been one before it is indicative that adwa is not the real sabab. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causes this illness. Sort of, I guess you could say, in a direct fashion. 
the response to that is that what what this hadith is saying, and remember what we remember what we said, and this is important about the context of the hadith that has la adwa, that the Prophet is clearly in this hadith, he is addressing a group of people who need to be taught that these beliefs that are associated with the beliefs, these beliefs that were widespread amongst the Arabs in Jahiliya, that they're false. Clearly, he is addressing here whatever concept of adwa they had. Which, as we said, as, as some of the commentators have said, basically uh, involves divorcing disease from having anything to do with the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That basically this happens without the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So basically the Prophet ﷺ is saying to them, is, is saying to this Bedouin that look, that ultimately this has to be by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That this happens. Because adwa cannot be the, the intrinsic cause. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, Does so that make sense? It seems like a very nuanced thing. I mean, in my mind, it seems why why could we not simplify it and say that, you know, it's the qadr of Allah, but there are observable scientific phenomenon. Uh, just like I can say, uh, you know, just, I mean, we know that sickness is from qadr, but we still take medicine to counteract the effects of the sickness. Why could we not say to harmonize this that, yes, it, the origination is from the Qadr of Allah, but part of what Allah has put in the creation are these scientific laws, one of which is that there is an observable physical spread of the disease. Exactly. Well, you know, that basically is what this, this, uh, this first group of scholars said, those who affirm that there is contagion. But it's, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, the point about scientific causes. One very important uh, point uh, that scientists often raise uh, in scientific debates is that correlation does not equal cause causation. And uh, in in sort of the theological debates and the and the fiqhi debates over this issue, you will find that scholars actually made this exact point that you that that those who are affirming contagion are arguing based on correlation. Correlation does not prove causation. So there might be some correlation, but that correlation doesn't prove that that is actually the cause. So, you know, based on the, the, the medical information that they had, I don't think even then that this was a very good opinion. I mean, again, obviously I'm going to be biased because I'm looking from my, uh, you know, with my year 2020 lenses on and you know uh hindsight is 2020 as they say um but you know given the information that they had in front of them and the state of of just knowledge generally in the world i can understand why scholars came out with this understanding now a couple of important points need to be made about that however this opinion, even though it exists, a problem, a problem is that people today, some of them who are pushing this opinion, they're pushing this opinion as if going against this opinion, you're going against Islam. Whereas, as we've seen, 
you actually had a host of scholars even before they had the medical knowledge, the, the solid medical evidence that we have today to back it up were already going against this opinion. And then it's a perfectly, if, if we just look at in terms of the text, it's a perfectly reasonable reading of the text. And the Prophet is saying, La adwa, and then negating a bunch of jahili, a bunch of other jahili beliefs. So clearly he's negating whatever conception the, uh, the jahili Arabs had about adwa. And then he says, oh, by the way, contagious diseases, stay away from them. Run away from the leper. So, I mean, I think that's a pretty obvious sort of reading, just of that hadith alone. And then all of the other hadiths can easily be made to fit, like the one that you mentioned about, um, about the plague. The pl if, you hear, if, if you hear of plague in a land, don't go to it. Nor if you're in it, then don't leave from it. I mean, it's very clearly, you know, this is, this is, this is um, sort of an early a precedent from the Prophet ﷺ for quarantine. And then, you know, we have the narration from Umar, the famous incident that when he went to Bilad al-Sham and the plague had happened, and so they were debating what to do. And so when he decided to go back, Abu Ubaidah said to him, uh, Ya Umar, afiraran min qadrillah, or Umar, are you running away from the qadr of Allah? And so Umar said to him, Innama nafirru min qadrillah ila qadrillah. That these are asbab, Allah, all of these asbab are from the qadr of Allah. And taking the sabab is not contradicting the Qadr of Allah. So, I mean, I think it's it's pretty clear from this that Umar, this is the way that he understood, um, you know, contagious disease. We see this also from, uh, from you know, in another incident. This is an incident with the Prophet ﷺ that is reported in Sahih Muslim um, that a delegation came from Ta'if to meet the Prophet ﷺ. This is at the time when when the when tribes are entering into Islam and they're coming and they're giving bayah to the Prophet to be they're giving they're pledging allegiance to the Prophet as Muslims. And so amongst this delegation that came from Ta'if, from the tribe of Thaqif, there was a man who had leprosy. So the Prophet he says to him from a distance, Inna We have accepted your pledge of allegiance, go back. So again, the Prophet seeing that this person is a leper, is asking for him to stay away. Uh, there's actually a lot of things that show that a lot of scholars actually affirmed the idea of, of contagion. Because aside from what, they've, what some of the things that I've actually just quoted about what they mentioned in the interpretation of these hadiths, uh, if we go back, we'll find that um, Imam Shafi, for example, Imam Shafi, this is very important. You know, people are, people are acting like affirming contagious disease being contagious is going against Islam. This is Imam Shafi himself in Al-Um, where he himself is writing his views. He, he says that, uh, he, he, he talks about, um, he talks about leprosy. And he talks about leprosy being a reason for annulling the marriage. Basically, you get married and then you discover that your spouse has leprosy, that this is valid grounds to, for, to seek an annulment. Uh, and then he talks about uh, he talks about basically um, the opinion of scholars of medicine, doctors of his time, and he affirms there that leprosy is not only contagious but also seems to be hereditary. 
Now, modern med according to you know modern medical findings, it seems that um, leprosy is not exactly hereditary. That you, leprosy does not pass from parent to child, but there are certain genes that predispose a person to being more uh, prone to be infected by leprosy. So there is, in fact, a hereditary component of it. So he, in his in his in his um, he very clearly affirms um, uh, these two these two points that disease can be hereditary, and that disease can be um, be uh, contagious, can pass so, from person to person. So can I can um, I bring this now to what we're seeing now? Yeah. In terms of people saying, taking now, people taking some of these classical opinions and saying, now applying it to a case where we're now dealing with, we've had three Fridays in a row where the Juma prayer has been uh, canceled, right? And so now you have people, imams in North America and elsewhere saying that, well, this whole idea of contagion and quarantine is a fix difference of opinion so some scholars held this point of view some scholars held that point of view so for us to come and open the masjid is not really going against islam we're following a legitimate classical opinion of fiqh while consulting whatever medical experts we feel is necessary but the the decision making authority lying with islamic scholarship that's one aspect of it and then i guess there's a bigger picture question that's tied intrinsically tied to this, which is Islam's viewpoint on public health and who determines whether, for example, the masjid can be opened or not. Um, that seems to be kind of the sticking point where, because now we have situations where, let's say the masjid administration may say like, okay, we're following now. Well, now there's guidelines. Social distancing is being mandated. So the masjid can't be opened by law, but people might still come to the parking lot and just pray Isha and, Jama'ah because they're following the other valid fic opinion in this case. Okay, this is a, this is a, uh, this is a very good question. Um, it's a very big question. But uh, to answer, let me begin by sharing a quote from Imam At-Tibi. Imam At-Tibi, um, in commenting on this issue, he mentions that there's these two opinions, one that affirms contagion and one that negates it. And that basically, you know, the proponent of each opinion has a certain strategy as to how they reconcile all of the hadiths together. Basically, they have sort of an interpretive strategy by which they, they, they weave all of the hadiths together into sort of a complete picture uh, that fits around the, the, the interpretation that they've chosen. When he explains why he chooses the opinion that uh, contagion is real and um, that La Adwa is not negating it. He says, I've, he says, I considered that the second opinion is the more correct opinion because number one, it reconciles all of the hadiths that are reported uh, in a sound fashion. Then also because the first opinion, the opinion that denies contagion, says, 
إلى تعطيل الأصول الطبية ولم يرد الشرع بتعطيلها ولم يرد الشرع بتعطيلها says the first opinion the opinion that denies contagion uh, its end result is basically uh, cancelling out the fundamental premises of medicine and the sh- the sharia did not come with a nullification of the fundamentals of medicine rather it affirms them and so he says uh, that you know that this should that uh, they're valid the fundamentals of medicine the principles of medicine are valid so long as they don't negate the foundations of tawhid the foundations of our our faith and that the and then he says that the explanation that i've offered in the manner that i explained does not contradict the usul of tawhid so alhamdulillah this this is the stronger opinion now what can be said in defense of the scholars who took this opinion uh, that there's no contagion in the past is that the evidence for contagion being real was not nearly as strong as it is now I and mean, if we consider it you know with basically in the 19th century we had the rise of what is known as the germ theory that there are germs that um, spread from person to person and that these are the cause of disease um, and so this led to the discovery of bacteria and viruses and other sorts of microbes microorganisms that penetrate the body and interact with you know the body's cells and they respond to it in a certain way and there's a complicated interplay between these uh, pathogens the the sort of these these disease causing microbes disease causing microorganisms and the cells of the body and so they will either resist it or fail to resist it and then this causes this causes illness and you know then sort of a struggle takes place inside the body between the 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 pathogens and the 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 cells of the body and you know if if it overcomes the disease then oftentimes you know this is accompanied by uh immunity to getting it a second time because it develops the memory the antibodies that are produced by the body uh to expel the the pathogen they basically develop a memory of that disease such that when it comes again the body is immune to that disease and you know on the basis of this theory the vaccine vaccinations have been developed um uh, diseases that used to be extremely widespread have been completely wiped out and in some cases we see with the because of uh, some of the anti-vaccination conspiracy theories that in certain places it's starting to come back some of these diseases like polio for example are starting to come back in small amounts because people are not getting vaccinated um so uh, so a lot of um medical advan- advancements have happened on the basis of this theory and basically now you know with the technology that we have starting from basically 200 years ago um, we've been able 
well, not we as in me, but we as in you know the modern the modern world uh, have been able to observe bacteria and viruses and the other sorts of pathogens under the microscope. We can actually see them. I mean, with the, with coronavirus, for example, we can actually take pictures of it. Sorry, we actually have pictures of it. I mean, you can Google it; you'll find pictures of the coronavirus. Uh, you know, scientists are able to take take it apart down to its components. They're able to, you know, um, uh, even st uh, monitor the different types of mutations that it's undergoing. Uh, so, with all of this advance that has happened with um, with medicine and also with the the technology that comes with it, we have the ability now, in terms of our understanding of disease, to understand the exact mechanism of how disease works, of how bacteria works, of how viruses work, um, and you know the the rest of of the the different types of of pathogens we no longer have it's no it's no longer up for dispute um and so what imam tibi said here i think you know if it was true in his time it is much more so in our time because our knowledge now that viruses and bacteria that they pass from person to person and that some of them are airborne and some of them, you know, um, pass via droplets or by other methods. This essentially is now a, a, an observed reality. This is now something that we have yaqeen of. It's something that is 100% certain. So any, um, and this comes back to a, a principle that basically all of the ulama have um, from across really the different schools of Islamic thought have all affirmed, which is that revelation does not go against reason. Meaning something that we know from, from reason, from, from secular knowledge that is 100% certain, does, cannot go against revelation. And revelation cannot, uh, they cannot contradict one another. It goes both ways. They cannot contradict one another. Something that we know that is 100% certain from revelation cannot go against something that is, cannot conflict, cannot come into conflict with something that is 100% certain from, 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 from aql, basically the, 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 the dichotomy of aql and naql. So this is something that, you know, all scholars have affirmed. Uh, Al-Ghazali, um, I, I mean, I can't name, name you any Mu'tazila off the top of my head, but I'm sure as well. Um, and this is a fundamental part of believing in revelation, that the revelation cannot be false. This is something that we know now for a fact to be true, that disease pass from person to person. Anyone who is, taught, who is saying today that this is not the case simply doesn't know what they're talking about. When Ibn Hajar was saying this, he was challenging the doctors of his time on the basis that their explanation doesn't actually work. Your explanation of how a uh, plague passes from one person to another, for example, doesn't actually work. So it's wrong. 
so it's all so, so it, the difference yeah. being classically the scientific explanations available to them they were able to poke holes in the scientific explanation whereas because, now because given the is, evidence available is much different right because those scientific explanations uh well number one now we know that a lot of them were actually wrong and on top of that they they were speculative in nature to begin with there was a good bit of speculation involved a lot of what we can observe now empirically they simply could not i mean we can we can put bacteria under the, the microscope and see what they do we can put them in cells and see what they do i mean i'm not i'm not a doctor or a scientist or anything um, oh. you know, this is this is basically like if you went if you went if you went through high school i think you should know this so one thing one thing so funny that you brought up anti-vaxxers so as we're talking i had this this thought that if someone now in my in in our time wanted to cling to this idea that the correct interpretation of the sunnah is that there is no contagion then it would almost by definition mean that they would have to actually believe that there's no such thing as vaccines or that vaccines are not effective yes because uh, well yeah basically because i mean taking uh, a vaccine I mean, I mean, would go against unless, that entire unless, principle unless, right and unless unless they want i mean i, I suppose if if somebody um, wanted to, they could work out a way to reconcile it. But basically, they would have to say that the explanation of doctors for why vaccines work is wrong. The reason that vaccines work is because they help keep your humors in balance or something. Gotcha. So I know I know we've gone quite a bit here with you know Dr. There's a like great detail and explanation. Any, any other, because I know you've been studying the subject a lot as of late, just because of all the discussion around it. Are there any other major points that we've missed out on that you wanted to, that you wanted to cover? Um, yeah, one thing, just to, to sort of reinforce what I said about um, the, the concept of contagion is not alien in the Islamic tradition. Aside from the quotes that I mentioned from, um, Imam Shafi, we actually have a host of scholars who said that basically when um, uh, when you have a large number of lepers in a community, that they should actually be isolated. Basically, they should be put in leper colonies. And even they said that you know it's the responsibility of the, the imam, meaning the state, to provide them a living. Because we're saying that we don't want them to mix with society. But if we're not, but if the state is not providing for them, then you know we can't deprive them of uh, the ability to to earn and feed themselves and take care of their families. So it's incumbent on the imam to actually provide them uh, a basically a salary, a stipend from the bait al-mal, so that they can be put in these leper colonies. Um, what's more, Abdul Malik ibn Habib. Abdul Malik ibn Habib is an early, early Maliki scholar from Al-Andalus who basically studied with um, you could say sort of the generation of um, the his teachers would basically would have been from the generation of students of Imam Malik he's not a direct student of Imam Malik but um, you know very early 
he traveled through, in his studies, he traveled through the East, the Islamic East, basically coming for, uh, to the Hijaz and other areas before going back to Al-Andalus. When he, he not only does he advocate this, but uh, um, uh, when he mentions this hukum, that, they, that if they're in a lar- there's a large number of them, they should basically be put in a colony of their own. He says, Meaning, this is now the general accepted practice. I mean, this is what was actually being practiced in his time. And we're talking about just, you know, uh, the second century of Islam, beginning of the third century of Islam. When he says, nas, It's possible that he means this is what they were doing in Andalus, in Islamic Spain. But it's also very much possible that he means that this was actually general, because he had traveled through so much of the Muslim world. Uh, it's possible that he also means that this was actually commonly practiced throughout the Muslim world. So the idea that disease is contagious and contagious disease passes from one person to another is not at all alien. I wanted to get that in there because this is a glaring example that shows that this is not something new. It's, it's not something new. I think, uh, you know, maybe in later centuries, perhaps uh, you have certain scholars like Ibn Hajar who took this particular view, although this view was around long before him, the view that there's no contagion, was actually it was an interpretation that was offered from a very early time. So these, the, the view existed, but when you have somebody like Ibn Hajar, for example, who is so influential, it's natural that in the latter centuries, particularly when um, Jaqlid starts becoming more and more common, that people will look to someone who's such a great authority like Ibn Hajar and accept his opinion. So I think maybe in later centuries, his opinion start, this opinion starts becoming more widespread and more dominant because of the influence of someone like Ibn Hajar. And, and I guess that, that kind of leads me to, I guess, my final question here. And this is not a fit question, but more maybe asking for your thoughts on this, which is, what do you think is the resistance on the part of uh, imams or scholars in our time to actually reject or go against that medical fact and modify their opinion or Islamic stance? Like, why be so dogmatic about a particular opinion, even though it's in opposition to what everyone sees? And and one reason that I'm asking that is because I think one thing, and, and I don't like, I don't want to be pessimistic here, but I think one thing that's going to happen as a result of this entire thing that we're going through is that a lot of people who are imams or spiritual leaders of communities are going to lose a lot of credibility afterward because they held these opinions. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because that's sort of where I was going with all of this. Um, so we have, uh, you know, the tradition, if you look at the tradition, it's very vast and it encompasses a whole vast array of opinions. But, um, you know, there's a couple of things that happen. One is that when you belong to a particular group, for example, you're, that group acts as a filter. So it looks at this tr- vast tradition, which is spanning 1400 years. And so it, it, it you know, the scholarly tradition, it has a lot of great things in it, but it has obviously a lot of mistakes in it as well, because these, are, these were human beings 
Um, and certainly when it comes to things like science, obviously their abilities were, were very limited. So, um, but wh wh whenever you belong to a certain group, one of the things that happens is that group acts sort of as a filter, that it gives importance to certain works or certain periods or certain you know types of knowledge so you're not so you know if you've if you've gone through a traditional sort of scholarship training program you have not actually learned and read everything that scholars were writing over 1400 years you've read part of that you've been exposed to a sliver of that and so there's a tendency this is one this is just one aspect of this question there's a tendency to look at you know whatever your group has filtered down to you as that this is you know this is the ultimate thing so for example you know we get people still peddling um and quoting the book of ibn al-qayyim uh, as i said was part of his zad al-ma'ad which I think is actually, you know, what he did was actually an, uh, admirable for his time that he's trying to reconcile what he knows from the Sunnah of the Prophet with, with medical knowledge. But it's t what he says is, you know, taken by some still today as like being some sort of gospel truth, where, whereas it's based on, you know, this, this completely debunked theory about the, the four humors. So just yesterday, actually, I think that like, it's from, been a few days just a few days ago i mean i saw something that um some scholar had posted talking about coronavirus where he quotes something from ibn al-qayyim and then he comments on it saying that you know that that this based on this quote from uh, ibn al-qayyim you should avoid exerting yourself too much because you know this will um uh, uh it will uh weaken your this was this is basically him editorializing from himself that this will weaken your immune system and then as it quoting basically what ibn al-qayyim said and it will stir up the humors and i just thought to myself oh my god what in the world is this man doing so you have people who for them because ibn al-qayyim said this it is gospel truth and we have to show that ibn al-qayyim was ahead of his time and I, I mean i'm not taking anything away from ibn al-qayyim ibn al-qayyim is a brilliant scholar an imam of the religion i'm 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 nothing i'm no one compared to ibn al-qayyim but he was a you know he was a man of his times and medical knowledge was nowhere near where it is today that doesn't take anything away from him i'm not going to refer to him for medical advice I might, as a researcher in the Sharia, look and try and see how did he understand certain hadiths related to medical issues, just to see what everyone has said. But I'm not going to look to him for medical advice about what to do with the coronavirus. So this is one thing that you know. But when you belong to a group, and I'm not, I'm, I don't intend to pick on Salafis here. I mean, Salafis do this, uh, Tabliris do it, other groups do it. Uh, every, every, you know, you get this with with groups that. You know, you, you've put certain people on a pedestal and, and made them the sort of the official spokesperson of the religion of Islam. So this is a problem. Another problem, I think, and this is a very important point, and I, this is probably even more important than, than the last point, is 
Um, again, I don't I don't want to generalize because different people in different places have very different situations. But uh, if we look at Pakistan, for example, in the or the Indian subcontinent, um, oftentimes when you go to a madrasa, you go and you're fairly young when you go to the religious madrasa um, for for you know religious training, Arabic training, Shari training. Um, and you get a fairly sort of traditional sort of, of education, regardless of which particular group you might belong to. So Brelvis have their madaris, the uh, Ubandis have their madaris, Al-Hadis have their madaris. Um, I guess Shia might ha must have their madaris as well. Um, so you go to the, these, these madaris, and so, you know, for, for many of these students, the first time that they're being introduced to concepts that are basically, I guess you would say, concepts of biology, first time they might be introduced to them might actually be in a fiqh book that was written by somebody, you know, um, a thousand years ago. And so, um, there, so some, that might be an extreme example, but it's a very real example. You get people who are in this sort of situation. So you get scholars who, in their training, are very much um, divorced from modern science. I mean, in my case, I'm someone who, I've come from a very different sort of background. I was born and raised in the US. I went to, I did all of my schooling in, uh, most of my schooling I did in private schools. Uh, took a lot of science subjects throughout all of those years. Went to university, got a bachelor's degree from an American university. Uh, in that time, because I was pre-med, again, I took a lot of science courses there. So that's a very different sort of background from, you know, someone who has, it's, and, and some of these people might be far more learned than I am, uh, but, you know, he's been, if he's, if he's been going through a much more traditional sort of education, whatever exposure he's had to science is going to be far less. Modern science is going to be far less, as well as he is, in a system where he is sort of uh, uncritically accepting all of these these notions that are being um, uh, mentioned in fiqh books and in other works that he's studying. So, for example, I mean, because I'm studying fiqh, I can I, I can just sort of rattle off off the top of my head a few issues that I've come across in fiqh books that are basically um, tied to faulty scientific information. And this is just a few of them, because there's actually a lot of them. I couldn't, I couldn't name them all off the top of my head. But um, for example, you have um, uh, the idea of prolonged pregnancies. So in the Shafi Madhab, Hanbali Madhab, and Maliki Madhab, uh, they considered that the maximum length for pregnancy is four years. And this is the, this is the standard view. And I've heard this, you know, in the university from professors. Um, I've heard people defend, I've heard professors defend this. I've had debates with people about this, people who insist on defending this, that this is in fact true. This is basically tied to a phenomenon that is known as uh, phantom pregnancies. Phantom pregnancies is a situation where out of thousands of women who think they're pregnant, one will have the signs of being pregnant without actually being pregnant. Like out of every, I don't know how many thousand, one woman will have a phantom pregnancy. 
where she thinks she's pregnant. So what can happen is that sometimes a woman could have a phantom pregnancy where she thinks she's pregnant and maybe um, her belly is starting to get bigger and she's having some of the other signs of pregnancy and her, uh, her menstrual bleeding has stopped. And then she actually becomes pregnant without having her menses, without having her, her, her menstrual bleeding. And so then she thinks that she had, she was pregnant for that many years. I mean, now basically, um, uh, amongst basically in modern medicine, this is known. This is basically this is impossible. A, 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 you know, a, a child cannot survive in the womb for that long. It's just not possible. Basically, it's nine months. You go a little bit beyond nine months. Let's say ten months, eleven months, whatever. I don't. I don't actually remember what they say. But basically, beyond that is impossible. This is one small example. There's so many of these issues. There's so many of them that come up um, that are based on faulty understanding of uh, of certain medical concepts, which is perfectly natural because at the time this is what you know what. Uh, scientists believe and so scholars were actually taking that on board um so it's almost as if people now are are taking the ijtihad of classical scholars and almost equating it with revelation that's set in stone yeah I, I mean i've actually i've actually had teachers who when i've challenged them on certain points not challenged them but i said to them you know you know Sheikh, this is actually wrong like this can't happen uh I mean, one of them, he, 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 he said to me that, you know, oh, you know, you think your, 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 your modern medicine know, know, knows uh, about these things. Our fuqaha know things that, you know, the, that modern, modern, modern medicine hasn't figured out yet. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh, my God. I mean, some of the things, some of the things that I've heard from, from, from professors. Or from well, you left, out, you left out your favorite one about the earth being flat. You know, the, uh, it's not actually the earth being flat. It's about the geocentrism. Ge oh, okay, yeah. Geocentrism, geocentrism plus the earth is stationary. Earth is stationary means it does not revolve around its axis. And there's a famous scholar. Okay, I'll, I'll just come out and say it. Sheikh bin Baz. Sheikh bin Baz wrote a book about this issue. This book was published in the 60s and it carried on being republished basically until the end of his life so for 30 years or so um i mean the, the print of it that i've I, i've come across online is actually printed in the 80s so it was at least being it was still in in circulation you know 20 years later uh, after he first wrote it he he um he argues that that um he argues for geocentrism that that all of basically you know we would call it the solar system. I guess you'd have to call it something else because it's not a solar system anymore. Is it? Uh, basically, all of the, the planets and the sun, that they're all revolving around the Earth and that the Earth is stationary. So that basically, that means in his, his concept is that in a 24-hour period, the sun and the stars and the planets, all of this revolve around the Earth in a complete circle every 24 hours because that is how the sun you know the cycle of the sun and the moon you see the sun every day so it's revolving around the earth 
I, I'm just really going in an incredible slingshot, just at a, at a ridiculous pace around the earth uh, every day for 24 hours. So that's basically his, his conception. And obviously, he hasn't really thought about it in any of those terms. But when he came to the point about the earth is stationary, um, you know, he presented what some evidences that he felt were textual evidences for this. Uh, I don't really remember what they were, but the, um, the, they're hardly, um, you know, anything that is really solid or compelling. Um, but he then mentions what he considers to be rational arguments. One of the rational, so-called rational arguments that he gave for this issue, and this, I, I mean, I, I, by the way, this book, I didn't actually go out to read it. Somebody was reading it and came across these things and then sent it to me, and I just couldn't believe what I was reading, so I went and read it. Um, so the, the argument that he makes um, he says that if the earth was rotating, that you know all the rivers and lakes and mountains and cities and geographical locations would constantly be moving. And so we would never know where anything is and we wouldn't be able to find the Qibla. I mean, I just find that mind-boggling. Like if you if, if 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 I take if I take a ball and I put a dot on it or I put two dots on it and then I rotate that ball, those two points relative to one another will still be in the same location. That is basically the concept that we're discussing here. This is not rocket science. I mean, fine, I get that you know Sheikh bin Baz, the environment that he came from. Um, had completely no exposure whatsoever to science. I can ex I, I can totally understand that, um, and I'm not I'm not trying I'm not trying trying to belittle him. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not trying to to belittle someone for holding an opinion, but I think it's maybe just bringing it back to the bigger picture of the, big, the, the, the bigger picture is that you know that okay. No, the point I want to make with this is that okay. So consider consider that this thing that he's saying. It's so obviously absurd. He wrote this 30 years before he died, roughly. I think actually more than that, over 30 years before he died. And it carried on being published throughout his life. Literally, all he needed to do was to just go to any high school science teacher in Riyadh, which they would have had plenty of foreigners who were there, uh, who were science teachers at the time. Who could have explained to him and, and just asked them, okay, you know, I have this rational argument. What is your response to it? Yeah, and, and this is kind of the issue that I've been seeing with imams who are who are on this, which is that this whole coronavirus thing is a fic issue. We'll take shura from the medical experts, but we're not bound to their opinion. Yeah, and this is this this is um uh, you know, Imam Shafi'i actually is on record saying that uh, one of his biggest regrets is that he wasn't able to learn medicine, and he regretted the fact that the leading authorities in medicine in his time were all Christians and that Muslims had yet to catch up with them. And the reason for this is because 
at that time, basically all of this Greek medicine was first, Greek medicine along with the other Greek sciences were first being translated into the Arabic language. And so the first authorities in them genuinely were these um, Arabic speaking Christians who lived in the Muslim world who already had, you know, had access to these things. And so, you know, he, on the, on the contrary, was very, um, in contrast to this mentality, the sort of uh, bloodist mentality, the Luddite mentality that we see that is very anti, um, anti-science, very skeptical of, of, of science and basically or of anything coming from the West. In contrast, we see that, you know, a great imam like Imam Ashaf, who's genuinely one of the you know, guiding lights of this ummah, uh, did not look at this and say, you know, this is a this is a conspiracy against Islam. Look at all these people; they're kuffar. How can we take our religion from kuffar? Uh, he is quoting, you know, the medical knowledge of his day about leprosy and basing ahkam on it. And this is, and by his own by his own by his own testimony, you know, this 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 information basically, you know, came to us through non-Muslims. So there, there's, there's, there is a, a problem. There is definitely a problem on an intellectual level that, um, that the mental, that the, uh, a lot of the traditional institutes, and I don't want to generalize because this is not, it's generally not all the way across the board. And I think, you know, even as, as we're seeing with, with coronavirus, this issue that's come out, that not everyone is like this. Not all of the imams are like this. Not all of the ulama are like this. But there certainly is a big element of, of this sort of reactionary mentality where they are skeptical of everything that is sort of alien to them. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that reflected here with, um, with, with the science stuff. And I think it also reflects in the way that, that, uh, that so many rely on, you know, conspiracy theories and the protocols of the elders of Zion and things like that to, to try and understand the world around them. I mean, it's, um, it, it it is an indica- it is indicative in my opinion of sort of a crisis that exists in the state of Islamic education in, in terms of you know scholar scholarship the, the scholar training training that might so that might be a good follow up conversation but I think we're I know we're running out of time here um, we've actually yeah. been quite a bit so Jazakallah uh, here for joining any anywhere online that people can connect with you that you want to share. Um, like I said, not really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm I'll tag you. I'll tag you on Facebook when I post this or something like that. Yeah. All right. Sounds like a plan. Okay. Well, just look here for for joining me today to explain this, and we'll chat again soon, inshallah. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Google Play or whatever podcast player you use. And please rate and review the podcast. As always, if you share it with a friend that's much appreciated, you can check the show notes for all the details and links. See you in the next episode.